You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. This morning, so 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 through 8, here's what Paul says. He says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. Not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. So this is the word of God for the people of God this morning. Would you join me in prayer, Father? Lord, thank you for your word, and thank you for the privilege that we have to come together this morning and study your word and and hear your word preached. Father, I pray that you would come and manifest more of yourself and your heart in Christ Jesus to us. I pray that you would come and encourage and strengthen and and rebuke and um, call us to repentance, uh, but also, Father, uh, awaken within our hearts a deeper love for Jesus, whom we know loved us first since before the foundations of the earth. And so, um, God, awaken within us a deep, a deepening, a deeper love for you. God, we do love you. In Jesus' name, everybody said amen. amen. You may be seated. Hey, so I've been working through um, a seminary class. Um, many of you may already know I've been working through seminary classes for the last few years. It's been a long time dream of mine. Here I am going to be 45 or 46 this year, I think. I can't remember how once you get past 40, it doesn't matter anymore, right? Um, but uh, it's been a long time dream of mine. So a few years ago, began just kind of working slowly through some seminary classes. I bring that up to just uh, make the point the class I'm currently in is a biblical theology class. And, and theology is one of my favorite topics because um, the study of God and how he um, has revealed himself to us uh, through the Bible, you know, there's various different kinds of genres or writing, you could say, in the Bible. Much of it is narrative or story form. And I don't know about you, but I love a good story. Um, I like to tell good stories. I like to tell stories. I don't know if they're good, but I like to tell stories. I definitely love stories. So I, I, would, I could sit with you around a table and tell you about all sorts of different TV shows that they're some of my favorites because they tell a good story, right? Or... I grew up reading a lot. I still read a lot, but there were a lot of books uh, when I was younger that I I would read and reread and reread because they told a good story. I was even thinking last night about the story of Old Yeller. Uh, I don't remember exactly why we were talking, but my wife and I were talking about the story of Old Yeller. It's a powerful story, right? So I love good stories. Um, and, and, And in my biblical theology class, we've been studying the different elements of a good story. And you think about your life, your life is a story that's being told and being written in the, in the midst of many other stories, in the midst of a grand story uh, under and by which Creator God is sovereignly in charge of. When you think about good stories, good stories keep your attention, right? They keep your attention until the very end. I got to tell you, one of my favorite movies in the last couple of years is a movie, is a movie called Tenet. Uh, if you haven't seen it, Tenet is spelled the same both forwards and backwards, and there's a middle part. Every time I watch that movie, I find something new that I missed. And I think I've seen it about ten times now. 
Uh, it's a fantastic story. Fantastic story. But anyways, in, 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 uh, in, in most good stories, um, they keep your attention until the very end. Keep you wondering until that final scene right before the credits roll, right? Uh, usually a good story has a main character, kind of the, the hero or the, the, or the good guy. Um, you usually have a villain or a bad guy or some kind of evil a dark element in the story, right, that's seeking to stop the forces of good. And usually has some supporting characters that are kind of caught in between both those two end poles of good and evil. And somewhere in there what begins to develop is kind of a picture or a vision of what freedom from that evil or that, that bad guy would look like. And you start to catch that vision for that freedom and you start to kind of desire that. You want that. You want the good guys to win. You want the bad guys to lose. You want the people that are caught in the story to, to taste and experience ultimate freedom, right? And in the midst of that, there's always these kind of elements of doom. Like, boy, if they don't actually attain what we're hoping they will attain, man, it's all going to be doom and gloom, right? It's going to be the, the end of the world. There's those Marvel movies that at some point you had the end of the world happening. And then I don't know how they did it, but they came back in the next movie and everybody that had disintegrated in the first movie came back somehow. Um, remember that? <laughs> you know, to me, that's just classic resurrection story happening in all of our um, current stories that we tell and get caught up in. So you have, the, you have a threat of doom. You got kind of an increasing tension that's, ta that's taking place in the story. Like the action starts to escalate all the way through and the tension gets thicker and thicker, right? Um, and then finally, somewhere around the final scene, usually just about right at the end, everything culminates into this big kind of a palpable moment and everything climaxes and then dissolves, right? Everything is typically set right um, or, or it's left wrong. It's left broken. And you begin to wonder, how can you set right what has been left broken? And then after that final scene, you'll usually get the credits, right? And that's where everybody gets up and walks out of the room to get something to drink or use the restroom. Let's get the credits. The text in front of us today, uh, the way I view the text in front of us today is kind of like the final scene in a really good story. Uh, the way that I'm coming at it is I'm looking at the story of the Apostle Paul, the author of this letter to Timothy. And what I'm wanting to do is, is I'm wanting to find some connections from his story to the rest of the story in the Bible. And my, my hope is to kind of tie it all together and hopefully God would use our time together to kind of help us fall a little bit more in love with Jesus. Now that's really, if you want to know what my entire aim is this morning, after about 3,665 words come out of my mouth, that, that is my, my basic aim. Next week is the credits. And you should show up for the credits, because I still think the credits are great. Apostle Paul, again, if you think about the author. Apostle Paul has been, he's been following Jesus and proclaiming the gospel for roughly 30 years at this point in his life as he writes this letter. He's been following Jesus, proclaiming the gospel for about 30 years. And if you do a study on the Apostle Paul's life, his life was no walk in the park whatsoever. There was nothing easy about his life. Uh, one author writing about the Apostle Paul said this, said, this once upon a time terrorist had become a world-renowned evangelist. 
<coughs> that as a subtitle to a story is a pretty good subtitle anyways. I mean, once upon a time terrorist becomes world-renowned evangelist. That gets your attention. It all began with uh, God in Acts chapter 9. Uh, graciously, I would say, knocking the Apostle Paul off of his horse as he's headed to Damascus to kill a bunch of Christians. God in His grace knocks him off his horse and, and calls him to come follow him. But the calling that, that God gives Paul is, often t- is, is different than what we oftentimes um, give as an invitation for people to come follow Jesus. The invitation that God gives to Paul to come follow me, come be a Christian, come be a part of my church, my bride, that calling was this, to suffer for the sake of God's name. That's Acts 9.16. So when God calls the Apostle Paul, he says, hey, I want you to come follow me, I want you to come follow me for this purpose, to suffer for the sake of my name. And from that point forward, the Apostle Paul begins sprinting towards his death. I mean, honestly, the moment we're born, we're sprinting towards our death, right? But he begins sprinting towards his death, towards towards the finish line with with what I think is the intensity of a battle-hardened warrior. Another author writing about the Apostle Paul, he envisioned or had this picture in his mind of the Apostle Paul in these moments. You've got to remember... Paul's getting ready to die, right? He's in prison. He's about to be beheaded, um, executed for, for preaching the gospel. So he's in this nasty little jail cell. It's kind of a hole in the ground with a grate on top. It's cold or it's hot, depending on the time of year. Um, and this author sees the Apostle Paul standing in that hole in the ground prison cell, waiting for his death, not with his head down like he's been defeated, but he's actually standing in that cell, and he's fully dressed in what this author says is the splendor of the armor that he described in Ephesians chapter 6. If you're familiar with the armor of God in Ephesians chapter 6, if you can catch this vision of the Apostle Paul then standing in that cell, He's got the belt of truth kind of right around the center. He's holding, it's holding all of his clothes together. And I always like to say, if, if you don't have the belt of truth on, you don't have a breastplate of righteousness, you don't have a shield of faith, you don't have a helmet of salvation, so on and so forth, because you don't have the truth in regards to those items. The Apostle Paul, though, is standing there with the belt of truth buckled about his waist, holding everything together, when most likely, in my mind, it seems like everything's falling apart. He's still human. And still to be human and standing in the midst of that cell after 30 years of ministry, knowing that your death is right around the corner, in some regards at times had to have felt like a a failure. Had to have felt lonely. It wasn't the big ministry with the pomp and circumstance that many would have boasted of. He's got the belt of truth holding everything together. He's got the breastplate of righteousness still protecting what I think is his vibrant, beating heart, full of love for God. He's got these studded leather boots that you'd wear in the midst of war. Those studded leather boots on the Apostle Paul covered in the blood of his enemies who had been defeated by Jesus at the cross in the empty tomb. 
the promise of eternity holding them together. Those boots um, would have brought Paul absolute peace in those moments standing in that jail cell. That's what those boots are meant to do. They're the gospel of peace. Would have had the shield of faith. You think about the shield of faith would have been large and imposing, not just this little round shield, but a, but a full lengthy shield. Would have had arrows stuck in it. Most of them broken off. Some of them might have had the tip just barely coming through the other side of that shield. But the Apostle Paul was unharmed. And if you could look at those arrows on that shield that he's standing there in that jail cell holding, you wonder what kind of arrows they were. And some of the ones that, that this author, and then as I thought it out, now, I'm certain there were arrows of fear and arrows of loneliness and arrows of anger or bitterness or resentment or selfishness or pride or lust broken off and sticking out of that shield. Would have had the helmet of salvation on his head. It was the helmet of salvation that was given to him by the grace of God um, through the faith that had been written upon his heart, that had been authored by Jesus himself, that shield, or that, that helmet of salvation, um, and would, would have kept Apostle Paul sturdy and strong in those moments. Finally, you'd see the sword of the Spirit in his hand. Sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, it's the Bible, it's the Scriptures, it's what the Apostle Paul has pointed to, in the last uh, few verses of chapter 3 and getting into chapter 4, that's what he honed in on was that sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, the Bible. It's the one offensive weapon that we all have. And the one offensive weapon that the Apostle Paul had in his possession. That when he would unleash it, would actually transform him from some mere mortal man into some kind of a superhero with superhuman abilities in the face of his enemies. And I, you read the account of his life throughout the letters that he wrote, and you see how many times he squared off and faced off with opponents and enemies and the way that he would use God's Word, the sword of the Spirit. Now, there's one story where he, he and another apostle, another believer, are walking through a city <clears throat> and there is somebody following along behind them who is like demon possessed and like talking a bunch of trash and the apostle Paul just stops and looks behind him and the, the text I think actually tells us that he, he stared at him with a really intense look and basically said, hey, you son of the devil. <laughs> I mean, you son of the devil, quit making crooked the straight paths of God. I, I see the apostle Paul when he would unleash that sword would totally transform him. The other thing to not forget about the Apostle Paul is you think about his story and how it intertwines with these words that he says in this text. Let's not forget the Apostle Paul wrote nearly two-thirds of the New Testament. Thirteen letters. He wrote more than any other apostle. And this is his final letter. These are, in effect, his final instructions. There's one brief instruction, so to speak, one or two brief instructions in the credits next week. Um, this is basically his final instruction, his final description, his final words, last thing he wants to say. So you think about it again, you got, you got Apostle Paul, right? He's this, this great terrorist who had been turned into a world-renowned uh, evangelist. He's followed Jesus faithfully until the very end. And for him, 
the very end is in sight, right? The final scene is unfolding. Credits are right around the corner. Climax of the entire story is right here upon us. And the image that you and I can probably see here is the Apostle Paul finishing faithfully, standing victorious in the peaceful, quiet aftermath of a fight well fought. He's fully dressed in his battlefield clothing. And what he's doing is he's awaiting, he's awaiting his pure white robes and his crown of righteousness was going to be awarded to him by the king of righteousness. I think for the Apostle Paul, what is even more important than the crown itself is the king of righteousness, the righteous judge. Paul's eyes here are not locked on his immediate gloomy circumstances, right? He's been wrongfully imprisoned, wrongfully placed on death row. Not filled with those gloomy circumstances. Uh, his, his, his eyes are not filled with the images of the horror of his impending earthly death by execution. He's not thinking necessarily about that in earthly, fearful, or angry terms. His, his eyes are locked on what it means to finish faithfully. That's what his eyes are locked on. He's ready for his eternal reward. He, he's fully in love with Jesus. That's where he's at. As I thought my way through the text and some of that story of the Apostle Paul, I landed on a few questions that I kept asking myself, and I think they'll be on the screen for you. I kept asking myself these questions. What, what, what is my goal line? These questions might be helpful to you. But what is my goal line? What, what am I striving for? What am I heading towards? If I were to say, hey, I, I, I ran that race and I crossed the goal line, I finished this thing, what is the goal line? Another question that's uh, kind of attached to that is, what, what am I leaving incomplete? There's a couple of ways you can ask that. What am I leaving incomplete? What, what am I resisting or what am I just ignoring? Like, hey, that's not quite dealt with yet and I just, I'd rather not deal with that right now. So what is that? Another uh, question that I think is tightly tied to this whole theme is what, what momentary rewards am I still settling for? Now, I wrote it that way for me because I know for me, there's like weird momentary rewards. You know what I'm talking about, right? Like sinful things you know you ought not to be doing. You shouldn't act this way or speak that way or whatever it may be. Thought life um, that it's, it's not like, oh, that's new. Hey, I need to deal with it. It's more like, no, that's old. That's been around for a long time. It's still a piece of my flesh that's still attached to me, and I want to keep ignoring that. I need to deal with that. What is that for you, maybe? At the end of the day, I, I, I think I, I, I'm, I'm thinking you guys, too, we want to finish faithfully, right? I don't want to be known as the guy that starts something and um, doesn't finish well. I want to finish well. But I think, as I think about that, I recognize that my goal lines need to be consistently adjusted. I recognize that there's a few things that I do keep resisting or keep kind of pushing off to the side and ignoring and not dealing with. Uh, I still realize that as I'm growing in my walk with Jesus, that I still need a more compelling vision, a compelling picture of what eternity, and what, what reward in eternity actually means 
if I'm going to circumvent any of the things in my life now that act as barriers to finishing well or finishing faithfully. So the question is, how do I, how do I wrap my mind around all that? How do I do all that, right? How do, I, how do I get a more compelling vision for my eternal reward in Christ Jesus? How do I get the strength or, or the courage to resist or stop resisting what God has called me to? How, how do I get the right goal line in my line of sight? How do I finish faithfully? That's the big overriding question. A few things that I see in the text. One um, could start with expecting to get run out. Well, not run out like they ran me out of town type thing, but run out, W-R-U-N-G. You know, like a soaking wet rag gets run out. Now, for me, the path of least resistance is usually my first impulse. As, I don't know, big as and, and imposing and, uh, I don't know, maybe confident at times as I may seem, um, the path of least resistance is probably my, my, my first impulse, first thought. There's some ways to think about that, right? Like the, the quickest line from point A to point B is a straight line without very many stops. If you see me out riding my motorcycle, you'll, you'll see that. It's the quickest way, A to B. Very few stops. And on the other side of it, too, I'm a very naturally impatient person. So, so for me, I think in my mind, I'm constantly trying to envision kind of the easiest and the fastest way to get to my desired goal. Anybody know what I'm talking about? You get there, too? Um, what I think happens in the midst of that is I'm strategizing the fastest way to get there because of my impatience is that the goal line, the actual goal line that I'm supposed to be heading towards gets a little bit skewed. Right? I get so intent on finding the fastest way to get there that I'm paying more attention to the course I'm on rather than the goal line I'm headed towards, if that makes any sense. And I think what happens there is I wind up looking a lot more like Israel, if you know that story. Uh, Israel wandering around in the wilderness of sin you know, for 40 years, trying to figure out where I'm supposed to go next. Um, when I think about the Apostle Paul, uh, part of the way that I think the Apostle Paul continued to align his goals, or his goal line, his finish line, with Christ's purposes for his life, I mean, part of the way that he did that is I think that he lived with an expectation that he would actually get run out for the glory of God. So when you, when you don't live with that expectation and you think it's going to be easy peasy, then when you start getting run out for the glory of God, you start thinking about what's happening right here and right now, and you're caught off guard. If the Apostle Paul, I think, lived with that expectation, he knew that from the get-go because God's call on his life was, come and suffer for the sake of my name. And yet, really, if you read the Bible all the way through, there is no other invitation. That is the invitation. Come to me, get yourself saved, and suffer for my name. That really is the message. The idea of being a disciple of Jesus is that you would pick up your cross and carry it like Jesus, which means suffering. So I don't think the Apostle Paul expected to achieve any other results. He was not expecting to 
achieve health, wealth, or prosperity, or any of those things. The Apostle Paul knew that following Jesus means that we will suffer and get run out for the glory of God. He expected to walk the pathway of his Savior with a cross over his shoulder as his life got poured out for the sake of the gospel so that the name of God would be proclaimed throughout the earth. This is what enabled the Apostle Paul to say in verse 6, I'm already being poured out like a drink offering and the time of my departure has come. It's interesting because he could have used different words. He could have used the words, I'm about to die, yo. <laughs> I mean, he didn't talk like that, but he could have said, my death is near. But he said, my departure, the time of my departure has come. The word departure, when you look at it, it you know, for us it's like, they're departing. No, we never say that. <laughs> you know? Elvis has left the building. <laughs> the Apostle Paul, my, the time of my departure has come. I'm departing from this life on this earth, and I'm headed somewhere much better. That's, that's the essence. When you go back and you study things the Apostle Paul has said, hey, hey, to be present here is good. To be present there is so much better. Nevertheless, God's called me to be here, so I'm staying here. It's going to be good for you that I'm here. That's Paul's whole thought there. I think that's Philippians. Paul wrote quite a bit about what it means to be looking towards heaven and knowing that our departure can come at any moment. The other, the other interesting phrase here in verse 6, he says, I'm already being poured out like a drink offering. Uh, this is actually some imagery that we don't have time to get into, but, it's, uh, but I'll do my best just briefly. Uh, I would encourage you to go study it out, just study out the phrase. Uh, the imagery here, and this is off the cuff, not even in my notes, so, so from memory, so give me some grace if I get it half wrong. Uh, but the imagery here, I'm already being poured out like a drink offering. Um, pouring out a drink offering comes from way back in Israel's history. And, uh, and, it, and it has to do with the work uh, that priests would do. So you could say pastors and leaders of the, the worshiping community. And, and they would pour out this drink offering, and it would usually be like a red wine. And there's something very symbolic. They would, they would pour it out in a certain place on the altar, and it's very symbolic of the blood that Jesus would shed. Um, and so when you look at the new covenant that we now live under, where Jesus says, I came to establish a new covenant that, that Jeremiah spoke of in, the, in places in the Old Testament. That new covenant is, is a covenant in Christ's blood because of his love for us. And so when Paul says, I'm already being poured out like a drink offering, it's interesting because he's not saying, hey, I'm the Messiah. He's not doing that. He's just simply letting them know, hey, my departure is right around the corner. My life is being poured out, being run out. Because the image of that blood or that wine, all that, all that imagery put together is the idea when you make wine, you crush grapes, right? you extract the juice. Um, when, a, when a lamb gets slain and slaughtered, its, its life is cut and the blood is poured out. So you're tying those together. And it's an image letting people know, hey, I've, my life has been run out for the glory of God. I want you to remember, too, that these words, if you're looking at context, it's a little bit of meaning of that verse. Context, remember, these words come right on the heels of verse 5. Look at the end of verse 5. These words come right on the heels of Paul instructing Timothy to do what? Be fulfilled by your ministry. No. Fulfill your ministry. 
Fulfill your, I mean, complete your ministry. In verse 5, that's what he's just told Timothy to do. And he's, he's carrying on that thought and saying, look at where I'm at. I want you to fulfill your ministry as I go. Now look at my life and know I've been run out for the glory of God. I expect that. So I think that's the first thing we could take from the text is expect to get run out for the glory of God. Second point is fight, run, keep the faith. Fight, run, keep the faith. Now it's fight, not run away and keep the faith. Okay, so when we get to the fight, run, keep the faith, let me explain. Apostle Paul says in verse 7 here, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. When Paul says that, I envision the Apostle Paul as a man who fought tooth and nail against the forces of darkness, both inside his own soul, and I also think inside the souls of those whom he ministered to. Okay? When you view the Apostle Paul as a minister and a pastor of many, one who planted numerous churches, he fought for the sake of seeing men and women freed by the message of the gospel. That, that was his aim in life, was to share the gospel where it had not been shared. When you think about the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul was no sideline cheerleader. I don't think that he was an armchair quarterback, right? Uh, he, he wasn't a backseat driver. He definitely wasn't an outside critic. And we take all those images and we know instantly, don't you feel that in your gut, like, Backseat drivers, don't like them, right? Armchair quarterbacks, shut your face and get on the field if you think you know what you're talking about, right? <laughs> outside critics, don't like people criticizing from the outside. You come get your butt in the fight and get some blood on your face and then we can talk, right? So there, 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 there's a feeling there when you, when you think about those kinds of people. And Paul was not those kinds of people. The Apostle Paul ran the race, when you think about him running the race, I think about his legs knew the weariness of grinding it out mile after exhausting mile. His lungs, you think about his lungs as he's running that race. His lungs knew the pain of gasping for every breath to keep on going. His mind, you think about your mind when you're running a race. His mind knew exactly what it was like to be tempted to just collapse on the ground in absolute exhaustion. And yet, this is not the image of the Apostle Paul. The image of the Apostle Paul is he kept grinding it out. The Apostle Paul also, I don't think, was necessarily concerned with winning the race. There's a difference. And the language here does not lead us to think that he believes he won the race. Because if he was... If his goal line was to win the race and be better than everybody else, well, he would epically fail at some point, wouldn't he? Though he's not concerned with necessarily winning the race. And the Apostle Paul here is overjoyed to just finish the race. Just to, to, to complete the job that God had given him to do. That's the image of the Apostle Paul when it comes to running. When it comes to keeping the faith. Apostle Paul never wavered in his faith. He, he kept on trusting God and, and trusting God, trusting God even more when everything seemed to be crumbling down around him. When Satan's temptation became too much to resist, or when sin's uh, momentary promises edged their way into Paul's imperfect life, when, when, when death wound up taunting his weary mind, what did the Apostle Paul do? The Apostle Paul always bounced back in repentance and faith. 
This is why the Apostle Paul can say that he has fought the fight. He has finished the race. He has kept the faith. He's done this until the very end. Paul was a fighter. He was a runner. He was a keeper of the faith. He fought furiously. He ran with endurance. He he kept hold of his faith the entire time because the object of his faith was none other than the crucified, risen, and returning Messiah. He knew that his faith was rock solid because he knew that the object of his faith was unwavering. Kept fighting, kept running, kept believing, kept trusting, resisting every urge to quit and surrender. That's strength and courage. (coughs) That's strength and courage and repentance worked out in front of us in the Apostle Paul's life. third thing I noticed in the text. This one might sound, (coughs) I don't know, cliche. Fall in love with Jesus. It sounds simple. Fall in love with Jesus. And for the guys in the room, it probably sounds too much like a Hallmark Christmas movie. There's far too many of those on TV right now. And I admit that I get stuck watching some of them. (laughs) Of my own doing, not because my wife makes me. So I'll just admit that. It's partly my fault. Mostly my fault. Fall in love with Jesus, right? Sounds flowery, doesn't sound very manly, but it really is. For all the ink that has been spilled and all the words that have been said about the Apostle Paul being a fighter, I think he was also a lover, right? I think that he deeply loved the people that he preached the gospel to, and I even think that he loved all of his enemies very well too. He loved the enemies who stoned him and beat him and abandoned him and betrayed him and abused him. You just read more of the account of the Apostle Paul's life throughout Scripture, and you, even if you just land on his trial hearings right before King Agrippa or, or Festus, you, you hear his concern as he's speaking to them, his concern that they would hear and respond to the gospel. I think that would be enough to prove that Paul loved people really fiercely. <coughs> and even more clear than Paul's love for people, his enemies included, was his love for Jesus. His love for Jesus just oozes off the pages of his story in his life. His vision of what it would be like to be in the perfect presence of his Savior. His vision of heaven, I think, kind of continuously backfed his deepening love for Jesus. And I also think that his deepening love for Jesus also backfed his vision of heaven. If you can capture that. As he understood more of heaven, he fell more in love with Jesus. And as he fell more in love with Jesus, he understood more of, more of heaven. And it just is a cyclical thing, I think, in the Apostle Paul's life. <coughs> I think this is why he says in verse 8, Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to those who have loved his appearing. So the Apostle Paul was a fierce fighter. We've established that. The fierce fighter because he continuously, this is why I think he was a fierce fighter. I think he was a fierce fighter because he continuously experienced the never ending love of God in Christ Jesus. <coughs> I don't think the Apostle Paul was just a fighter just to be a fighter. I think he fought well and he fought hard because he experienced this never ending, sacrificial, 
grace-filled, merciful love of God in Christ Jesus at the cross. And I think that he just couldn't help but to fall more and more in love with the one who had taken his filthy rags of self-advancement and then in return had promised him a white robe of unearned perfection in the crown of Christ's righteousness. You see, the promise of complete perfection in the presence of our crucified, risen, and returning Savior. This, I think, is, this is what I believe caused the Apostle Paul to literally and simply fall head over heels in love with Jesus time and time and time again. And in doing that, he would look forward to the day when there would be no more tears, no more sin, and no more suffering in heaven. When you read the book of Revelations, which feels like the end of the story, in the Bible, because it kind of is, and you get near the end of the book of Revelations, <clears throat> there is a passage that speaks of what it's going to be like on that day that Paul's talking about here. On that day, uh, God would be with his people. He would belong to his people, and God's people would belong to him, and they would be in each other's uh, presence perfectly with no more sin, no more tears. No more mourning. Um, everything will be made new. Right? That's the image on that day that Paul is talking about here. And all who love God, love Jesus, will experience that day. No more tears. No more sin. No more suffering in heaven. And I think we latch onto that really well, don't we? Because we experience that stuff in this life. I, here's, I want to say this, and I'm hoping this will make sense, because it's, 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 it's kind of been messing with me all week. So it's still messing with me. I think it's great to look forward to the no tears, no sin, no suffering in heaven. It's, it's perfectly okay, perfectly right, perfectly good. There's something about the no tears, no suffering, you know, no sin in heaven that's like the results of being in heaven that I'm looking forward to. You get what I mean? It's the results of being there. Actually being there, the thing that's going to like, there's something that's going to blow the doors off those things. It's just being in the presence of Jesus. Can you imagine, just imagine with me what it would be like to be in the presence of somebody that knows every thought that ever went through your head. Every wrong image, every filthy image, every, every thought that went through your head. And to be completely loved and accepted by that person. To be completely known for all your good, bad, and ugly. And to be completely loved and accepted at the same time. Because you've trusted that his work at the cross and the empty tomb and that promise of heaven was for you. I think that's transforming. So conclusion, briefly... How do I get the right goal line in my sight? Right? These are the questions I asked earlier. <clears throat> the answer is need to expect to get run out for the glory of God. Right? <coughs> How do I get the strength and the courage to quit resisting what God has called me to? Answer, fight, run, keep the faith. How do I get a more compelling vision of my eternal reward in Christ Jesus? Answer, I need to fall in love with Jesus all over again. I don't know if you know what that's like in a relationship. Um, well, if you're in a relationship for a long time, Christy and I have been married for 20 years now. Uh, 
Then you get there like 26, right? Or 27. Our oldest daughter is 26. Yeah, I'll lose track. I'm 40, I'm gonna be 45 or 46. <laughs> well, if you're in a long-time relationship with somebody at some point, um, you start to know there's ebbs and flows in the relationship. And the same thing happens when you're in a relationship with Jesus. You have flat periods, quiet periods, dry periods, unbelievably powerful periods, seasons. So I think that's why this, this answer of, man, fall in love with Jesus all over again is really compelling. Because it feels like there's something to always learn, something to always know, something to dive deeper into in my relationship with Jesus. And that's how I think you and I finish the race faithfully. It's just by striving to fall more and more in love with him. Now, in fact, if you think about it, I think that the, that, that, uh, that, that principle, actually, I think everything in this passage revolves around that one thing, right? When you think about our ability to stop resisting God's calling on our lives, whatever He's calling you to in obedience, you want to stop resisting that, fall in love with Jesus, and you'll stop resisting that. Um, he's calling us to be like ha- this happy pursuit of getting run out for the glory of God, no more excuses, Right? I think falling in love with Jesus enables us to do so. Again, remember the Apostle Paul writing final words to Timothy, young pastor of a church in Ephesus the Apostle Paul had planted years ago. And in the final words of this final 13th letter of his, what does he write about? He writes about getting run out for the glory of God. He writes about fiercely pursuing God's calling on his life. Why? Why would he write about those things? Because of his deep love for Jesus. That's what I think motivates the Apostle Paul. He's got a single focus. I want to love Jesus, and I want to love Jesus more and more each and every day. Think about this too. I'm going to build this out a little bit more. He writes these things to the one church, the Ephesian church. It's the one church who honestly, I believe, had more letters written to it than any other church that Paul planted. The argument can be made that the Corinthians had two, most likely three letters. Uh, Ephesians actually has multiple times. Um, you got the book of Ephesians. Then you got First and Second Timothy. That's three, because Timothy's their pastor now. So they got three letters. There, there's a fourth time for sure um, where they are referenced. The book of Acts references them quite a bit too. has the longest discourse on the Apostle Paul speaking with the Ephesian elders on the beach where he cries and weeps and wants to return and talks about wolves coming in. And the Apostle Paul has already spilled a bunch of ink to the Ephesians. But it's interesting that God in his sovereignty saw fit to write one more time to the Ephesians in the book of Revelation through the Apostle John. It's a completely different author, completely different character in the story now. Writes to the Ephesian church, and what do you think he says? He says to the Ephesian church, hey, you need to return to your first love. How about that? That's the central theme for the Ephesian church. And I think for us, is loving Jesus more. Falling more and more in love with Jesus. Honestly, honestly, if you think about it, it's not just the Ephesian church, right? Like, we need to hear this too. Um, But if you think about this in terms of the entire Bible from beginning to end, isn't this the essence of the entire Bible? Love Jesus. And what does Jesus say? If you love me, do what I tell you to. That if you love me, that's what you'll do. You'll do what I've told you to do. 
you'll, you'll, you'll be obedient to my commands. Now, the crazy thing about there's some irony in that because Jesus saying that knows he's the only perfect person who's ever lived, knowing that he'll never fulfill that obedience factor perfectly, right? But have you ever thought that repentance is part of obedience? You know what I mean? Like continuing to repent and walking out that slow growth process. Instead of seeing repentance as a destination, I arrived, I repented, I'm good. I'm like, I'm going to continue to repent, continue to repent, continue to repent. And as that happens, I'm going to continue to fall more in love with Jesus. And I'm going to continue to repent some more because I'm falling more and more in love with Jesus. So if you look at the entire Bible, briefly, it's a lack of love for the Lord that's been the issue from the get-go. Hey, go all the way back to the garden, Adam and Eve, right? What was the issue? It was a lack of love for Jesus, a lack of love for the Lord. That's why Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit. Think about Cain and Abel. It's a lack of love for the Lord that, that caused Cain to kill Abel. This is why Noah got drunk. This is why Moses doubted God. It's why Abraham lied about Sarah being his wife. It's why Israel continuously rebelled against God. It's why David raped Bathsheba and murdered her husband. It's why the prophets continued to call Israel to repent or suffer the consequences. This is why Judas betrayed Jesus because he didn't love Jesus. This is why Peter denied Jesus, because he was lacking in his love for Jesus. And do you know that when Jesus restores Peter, what does he say to him? Do you love me? And this is why the Apostle Paul uh, lamented in Romans 7, his own inability to obey God perfectly. That's why you and I struggle, isn't it? It's why we struggle with willingly getting run out for the glory of God as we pursue His calling on our lives. The beauty of the entire story, when you take all these stories and tie them all together, right? The beauty of the entire story is Jesus. Jesus never failed in pursuing His calling to be our Savior. He willingly and joyfully was poured out as the Fulfillment of the drink offering. He was the offering of atonement for our sins on the cross. On top of that, he didn't just do that. Oh, that's beautiful. He left the tomb empty. Which is what Paul says later in, in to the Corinthians. Because, man, our entire faith hinges, rests on the fact that the tomb is empty. But it's in that truth that we can trust that he saved us in the midst of our sin he came down here knowing us completely knowing our thoughts knowing our actions not just past or present but even future he knows sovereign he's god he knows what i'm going to do when i walk out of this place he knows the next thought or image is going to run through my mind as i stand here in this pulpit he knows that and yet he totally accepts me totally accepts you if you've trusted in his work at that cross it's crazy to be completely and fully known, yet completely and fully loved and accepted at the same time. It's crazy. Jesus came and he did all that and he gave us the promise of eternity in his perfect presence with his crown of righteousness. Think about it. It's not a crown that you or I earned. Oh, there is a theology of earning rewards in heaven. This, this crown of righteousness is going to be placed on Paul's head and your head and my head when we walk into that place called heaven. It's his crown. 
And he just gives it to you. And he just gives it to me. He's like, hey, this is mine, but you get it. And he gives you and I these pure white robes. And they're, they're in place of all the filthy, sin-stained clothing. Like you think about the, the idea of that. Like I, I, it's hard for me to think that I would go over to the buckle and buy some brand new beautiful clothes, which I don't ever do because it's too expensive, just so you know. But it just seems unfathomable to me that I would go buy a bunch of clothes from the buckle and then walk up to somebody who's wearing some really tattered, bad clothes and say, hey, let me give you these brand new clothes and I'll take your old clothes. It's not even like, hey, let me give you some new clothes so I can take your old tattered ones and throw them away. It's like, let me take your old clothes and put them on me and you put on my brand new clothes. The finish line for us, the finish line for the Apostle Paul is the doorway of heaven. That's the finish line. That's the goal, right? The fight we fight, the race we run, the faith we keep, that is actually the activity of repentance and faith continued. If you're going to fight, you're going to run, you're going to keep the faith, you're going to repent and trust in God over and over and over again. And you're going to fall more and more in love with Jesus. The more that you resist Satan, the more that you resist sin, the more that you resist death, the more that you turn to the revealed Christ, the revealed Savior, the Messiah, the one who loves you and I more than we could ever imagine. You turn to Him in His Word, in prayer, in praise, in community, and what happens is you fall a little bit more in love with Jesus as time goes on. And that, my friends, I think is how we finish faithfully. Amen? Let's pray. Please stand. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for our time together. Pray, God, that you would come and minister to us as we close our time together. Pray that your spirit would continue speaking to us, drawing us to the foot of that bloody cross, the doorway of that empty tomb, reminding us of what the promise of heaven really means. Help us to fall more and more in love with you, we pray. In Jesus' name, everybody said, Amen. You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com.